What's up everyone, welcome to another episode of Desolation Radio. It's me, your boy Dan Evans. I'm joined, as ever, by the boy Nathan Cush. Hey, alright? How are you? What's happening, son? Nah, not, not much, like. <laughs> by the boy... Dr. Kieran Smith. Dr. Rilla. How are you, you boy? Uh Yeah, pretty good. You alright, boys? Not bad, mate, not bad. Yeah. Delighted to be in Bristol, we're on the road again. Over um, the bridge. We're joined by our... We didn't jump off it. We're joined by a very dear friend and comrade, Dr. Even Golalobov. Me and... Well, we go back... Two years. Yeah, to the revolution. <laughs> together. Yeah, to the revolution. Even is just, well, a Russian punk author, academic, uh, an author of Punk in Russia, Cultural Mutations from the Useless to the Moronic. Yes. Get that one right? Yep. Today, Even's going to talk us through the life of the, well, incredible Ukrainian anarchist peasant leader, Nest- oh, yeah, you've already introduced me. <laughs> yeah, we've got two of them on the show today. Um, Nesta Makno, the one and only Nesta Makno, who head of the Black Army of the Ukraine, leader of the free anarchist territories during the Russian Civil War. So, Ivan, tell us about Nesta Makno, because he's not someone that <laughs> most people will have heard of. No, yeah, uh, surprisingly, neither, <laughs> neither here in this part of the world, nor actually in his uh, own corner, he is considered as a... Uh, one of the key part of uh, post-revolutionary civil war um, in Russia, everybody knows about black, uh, about whites. Everybody knows about reds. That was uh, that everybody thinks that the war was between these two. Uh, however, in reality, the war are the forces, and one of the biggest forces, which were neither whites nor reds, were the blacks. There were uh, anarchists, um, which formed their own independent territory, which kept uh, its independence for about four years between 1918 and 1922, we can say. And the leader of this territory was certainly Nestor Mahno. Uh, so, about him briefly, he was born in a village which was called Gulaipole in southern Ukraine, in a family of peasants, uh, and grew up there pretty much, uh, spent all his childhood there, got uh, upon his upbringing, got interested in anarchist ideas very early, and joined his first uh, anarchist organization in 1906, so he was pretty young and was just after the first Russian Revolution. And uh, straight after got involved in a lot of uh, anti-state activities, was arrested several times for possessions of firearms and for attempted uh, use of them uh, for political purposes. And in 1911, finally was prosecuted and sent, um, sentenced to death, which was later uh, swapped for life sentence was released after the October Revolution and came back straight to his home village, not to Moscow, not to St. Petersburg, where all the fun was happening, but to a sleepy, supposedly sleepy Ukrainian steps. Very homesick. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now, Nestor, if we release you, you've got to promise that you're not going to do any revolutionary activity. <laughs> <laughs> I promise. I promise. <laughs> well, What's yeah. that flag you're drawing with yeah. the skull and crossbones on it? Um, it's my kid. He likes pirates. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Bristol is here for, for a reason, yeah. Uh, anyway, else this podcast would not be so groovy. Uh, yeah, so um, straight upon arrival back to Hulaipole, he started forming his own uh, anarchist organization, which he later called yeah, Black, um, Black Army. And what this particular type of, uh, we can say, it, we can call it an army, we can call it political association, organization, was um, what the objective of that was, is to combat any form of state presence in this area. So the 
first enemy which they had to combat, which was quite visibly present, is the occupational force of Austro-Hungarian and, and Prussian Germany, which after the Brest uh, peace treaty kind of controlled formally this part of, um, of Ukraine. But then immediately they started to fight on all sorts of other statist fronts. If I were fighting against the Ukrainian nationalist government of Hetman, they were fighting against all kind of white attempts to reinstate the, the Tsarist Empire or the, the, the official Russian Republic. And by the very end of the existence of the free territory, they were fighting against the Reds, who started to be institutionalized as a state mm. themselves. And then he moves to, he goes to Paris, he gets exiled. Yes, then he was, uh, they were fighting alongside Red for quite a long time, but then when the Reds decided to go on offensive against the Black Anarchist Army, they, Mahnon, 21 of his close friends, I think, fled through Romania, spent some time in Berlin, and then uh, landed in Paris finally, where he started writing his memoirs and died in 38, I believe. Okay. So that's a great overview of his his life. We'll talk now about the, I guess the the his overall significance and the, the key dates. So he comes back, as you said, there was um, a lot of anarchism in, during the first Russian Revolution. It was in nine oh five. Yeah. Because um, who was it? Was it the? Um, I can't remember the name of the. Because Lenin's brother got executed in the aftermath of. I think he participated in, in Narodnik, one of, Narodnik, yeah, yeah Narodnik Volia. Mm-hmm. Um, and but there was a lot of individual assassinations, wasn't it? There was yeah. a lot of. Uh, a lot of the anarchist tactics at the time the, were assassinating and bombings and things like that. Russian emperor was assassinated yeah. by um, one of the anarchists. So, so there's a big anarchist. pedigree and there's anarchist movement has started previously. Yes, I think this, uh, it's difficult to make a difference between whether it's purely anarchist or whether it's narodnik, yeah, whether it's narodnik. populist. Yeah. Populist is typically Russian revolutionary tradition, which mm. he specifically aimed at, at politicizing and revolutionizing peasant masses. Okay. Illiterate inert who don't care about anything other than their own cows and pigs a lot like <laughs> whales <laughs> <laughs> so yeah all right so he comes so he comes back to the ukraine um what so we've been reading his diaries and in terms of the i guess it's probably a bit of a leap in terms of the, the first thing that happened but he essentially implies strongly in his reflections on what happened that the peasants in his his part of the Ukraine essentially preempted the Russian Revolution of October 1917, and he claims that they'd started attacking the the state or the, the the Tsarist state in Ukraine a couple of months earlier. So that happens. Then, I guess, what happens in terms of in the Ukraine during the Russian Revolution? What's the role of the peasants there? Well. The revolution of 1917 was predominantly made in big cities. Yeah. I mean, the dr- biggest driving revolutionary forces were workers, industrial workers, and army personnel and sailors, especially in St. Petersburg, which is a big military port. With that crunch start, yeah. isn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah. But, um, obviously, the tradition of revolutionary activities, this whole Narodniki, this whole populist tradition, and if you read Gorky, the mother, if you read all the revolutionary writers, the peasant element was always present on the background, but was never never managed to put itself in the center of revolutionary discourse, so to say, which is completely hegemonized by intellectuals, mm. more or less, or, or coming, whether organic or not, coming from industrial workers. So peasants were always kind of silent. And this is what 
Mahno's, I think, biggest contribution in the revision of what revolution was. He was a peasant. He came back to his native land and he started speaking for the peasants as a peasant, not as a cool chap from town. Yeah. Coming <laughs> on, 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 yeah, look, guys, yeah, let's, let's, yeah. let's do that. No. So he understood who he was. He almost explicitly disliked urban yeah. environment. Uh, he disli- He was very suspicious of industry as mm. a whole thing, as, as a backbone of, of production, as a, as a backbone of economic progress or anything. He was peasant down to the bone, and, and he spoke as a peasant and, and did things as peasants would do, probably. So that, I think, is a very interesting take. It's fascinating because we've already done a, a podcast on the life of Trotsky with our friend Steph, and obviously everything that I've read on the Russian Revolution, or even if you read Marxism in general, as we spoke about off mic, the the peasant is kind of a demonized figure. You know, the peasant is seen as selfish. You know, you've got the kulaks, the stole grain, the, the, um, e- the idiocy of, of yeah, village life. Yeah, that's what Marx specifically says: saving people from the idiocy of rurality, basically. Mm-hmm. So they're seen as an explicitly non-revolutionary group and reactionary group in many ways because they're selfish and they're uneducated. And if you read his diaries and the, the story of the Magnavist movement, he talks about, you know, the tenets of anarchism and how the, pe- the peasants were actually imbued with this like revolutionary fervor and, and you know, sort of like, a, I guess, a class con- version of class consciousness. And we'll talk about this because this is what brings him into conflict with, with the Bolsheviks. So... It's also important to note that, as you said, strategically, at the time of the, you know, the, the Russian Revolution and the time of the Counter Revolution, there were no Red Guard units or Bolsheviks in the Ukraine. So the Black Army were the ones holding the territory essentially, and they apparently or allegedly, if it wasn't for the Black Army in the mm-hmm. Ukraine, the White Army. Could have actually yeah, they would smash reached. smash the revolutionary Moscow easily. I yeah. mean, there was Mahnovist forces which which held the the, the back front for for the whites, which prevented them from advancing to Moscow. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I nearly got confused then because he fights against so many different forces. Yeah. <laughs> fights against so many different forces. So orig- originally, he also has a go at. Uh, I don't know if this is true, but he seems to be angry at the peace. Of Brest, Livots, because he's, he's he he kind of calls that a bit of a he's angry at the Bolsheviks because he he obviously wanted to keep fighting the Austro-Hungarians, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know whether that's significant. Well, it wasn't part of it as well that um, the Brett was Brest-Livosk uh, treaty, like Brest-Litovsky. Yeah, yeah, it mm-hmm. um, it meant that a lot of the Austro-Germans could just take a lot of the food from from the Ukraine. Well, they basically had Ukraine as a control territory, yeah. all of it. So pretty much, so that that was the the. Oh, so there was a strategic consideration. Was it Ukraine a concession to the? Yeah, that was uh, the, the right. Bolsheviks, con- okay. Trotsky's concession to to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, hence, and um, hence him not being uh, too happy about it. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> okay, okay, so that makes more sense now why he's so angry about uh, the the peace treaty itself and calls it betrayal. Let's talk about his relationship to the you know the Bolsheviks to the revolution because, as we said, they were holding them. They were holding the revolution down, the peasant, the peasants in Ukraine, um, and then the Bolsheviks do send troops out. They start fighting alongside one another. Originally, it seems like they have a very good relationship. Can you tell us a bit more about those initial 
the initial days of yeah. the, the, the civil war? Yeah, obviously Mahnop supported the revolution. And although the peasants themselves, if you read his diaries, they were quite suspicious about the Reds, the Bolsheviks especially, because there were people from town coming to and the Russia, villages. Yeah. yeah, and mostly from Russia and a lot of them from non-Ukrainian background. They were quite, um, yeah, uh, who are they? Yeah, we, we, we don't really want to fight fight for someone who is far away in St. Petersburg or Moscow. But Mahno almost single-handedly uh, propelled the idea of the revolution to the peasants, so they invent in his Gulaipole and free territory, so they kind of took side. Personally, Mahno admired Kropotkin big time, and mm. as we know, Lenin admired Kropotkin as well. Okay. So Mahno did go to Moscow, and he did have a meeting with Kropotkin, where, which <laughs> ended up in a bit of a bluff for Mahno. Because he asked for directions. It's like, am I doing things right on Hulaipole? Mm-hmm. Am I, what, what would you do? What would be your advice? And Kropotkin said, man, you're getting anarchism wrong. There is no oh, such okay. thing as, as advice from you have to do it yourself. Yes, for your a way. few bread recipes from yeah. Kropotkin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so. No, you need to proof it first. Like. And he goes to, and he, and he, at the time, actually, he meets with Lenin as well. I didn't mm-hmm. know that. And he, he later sort of calls it a betrayal. So the so the Russians move into the Ukraine and start fighting against the whites because there's a huge counter revolution, and interestingly, well, importantly, I think that Makhno identifies a counter revolution as a key part of any revolution. Mm-hmm. So like, don't be surprised. You know, you can't talk about a revolution without a counter revolution. It's almost like it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So, and part of the revolution being successful is you have to be prepared to put down yeah. and fight against a counter revolution. Yeah. It's not just going to be this thing that happens in another well, shock. Makhno was an ex- exceptionally practical person. Mm. He was only interested in practical aspects. He knows from his experience that if you if you have a force, you're going to have a counter-force. There's all this ideal things which we can talk about that only exist in our theories. In practice, there will be always people of different opinions who are ready to take arms against you. So that was his clear understanding, and that's why his priority was building the army building an army first and then thinking of how we're going to organize economy, how we're going to organize territory itself, how we're going to call it, and blah, blah, blah. So you have to be prepared to defend yourself. So that was his his first point. Organized, militant. There's. We'll talk about his contributions to anarchism later, because I think the, the idea of the organization is fascinating, because it, it kind of seems to, to me to split with what most people would think about when they think about anarchism. But in terms of the relationship, the early relationship with the Bolsheviks and how the free territory starts to come into play. So mm. what happens? The Bolsheviks are out there. They're both fighting against the, the, the whites. Then it seems to me that he starts getting really angry that the, the Russians seem to start to try to impose a state structure on, mm-hmm. on it. Well, they had, first they had an official agreement, I think, at the, at the level of the state that Black Army could have as much as 50,000 personnel, active personnel. And uh, the Reds would not touch them or anything, and they could control the territory uh, the way they want. So that was a written agreement between okay. Mahno and Lenin almost personally, I think. Uh, but then, obviously, I mean, this is a big army, 50,000, mm. right? <laughs> so the Reds weren't that happy to have this kind of barely controlled um quite elusive as well army because it wasn't a normal conscription army or anything Uh, you can be simultaneously an army person and and not army person and so it was quite annoying element for 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 the reds 
And so, yeah, the Crimea campaign was the one where they, the, the Bolsheviks decided finally to put this army to an end um, by throwing them against the, uh, the whites in a very difficult offensive and then basically attempting to finish the, the, the black army themselves after that. Or uh, putting ultimatum, either you completely capitulate or basically you're going you're gonna to be exterminated. And obviously Magno says no. Magno says no. The army dissolved quite quickly immediately because the pressure was too high and Magno, yeah, fled himself. But but this period is, they've held the territory for four years. They've held the territory, okay, the loose territory, the borders were constantly moving, but Mm -hmm. at at the peak, at the heyday of the territory, I think it was probably like the territory of Belgium and Netherlands taken together. Wow. So, uh, it's quite a big, which control, which, had not just rural territories, but several quite big cities in, which nowadays are million plus cities in Ukraine. Really? So they had, uh, I think at some stage they might had, yeah, they had Kharkov, which is a very big city in the east of Ukraine. They had Yekaterinograd. Yeah, big, relatively big urban centers as well. Okay. In terms of the significance of Makhno for, I guess, for anarchism in general, one of the interesting things that you note when he's talking about the revolutionary period and anarchism, he's very adamant all the way through that he's sticking to anarchist principles. He won't compromise. He's, he's you know, he's a libertarian communist, but he rails against the disorganization of what he calls certain groups of anarchists and disorganization inherent to anarchism. And he's very explicitly says we're a van you know this is a vanguardist organization and we and he goes into great detail about you know the minutiae of military structures and the, you know he has his a brigade brigade staff and like bands of partisans and there's a very extremely tightly organized group and so he basically says that, you know anarchism is not about being disorganized especially under these revolutionary conditions it's it's actually about having extremely disciplined organization the thing that defines his anarchism and goes all the way through it is this anti-statism. It's his determination to resist any form of formal state structures being imposed on the territory. So I guess, okay, apart from the, the military organization of the Black Army, which is obviously essentially organized like a, in an organized way, like a traditional army, but with partisans on top and, as you said, guerrilla warfare and so on, what were the social relations like within the the free territory? Because that, I guess, is one of the more, like, just you know, just like yeah. anarchist Barcelona, anarchist <clears throat> Barcelona, or just like Rojava. The, the tragic thing about anarchist sort of experiments and case studies is that they're always on a war footing. They're always at mm. war. So, you, but I don't know much about what was happening in terms of the anarchist principles at play within the day-to-day life of the, well, the free territories. Yeah. So I think what uh, is a long-term contribution of Machno and his ideas, uh, of which he might not be aware himself, uh, clearly, uh, of, of which he didn't clearly reflect at least, is a particular form of anti-capitalism, uh, which in his case was an almost militant anti-industrialization. So he didn't like factories. He didn't like uh, industrial or results or effects of the industrial revolution, which were barely felt in, in, in the Ukraine at the time, in the southern Ukraine, but still you could see the, um, he saw it as something bad, as something which he was, uh, able to fight against. That's why his 
peasantry, whatever we call it, is not just peasantry, but it's also a form of proto-green policies. Mm, yeah, I was going to ask, is that was there kind of an e- ecological kind yes. of um, a person, backing to this kind of philosophy? Yeah, people the, in Soviet historiography, for example, in Marxist historiography, this is always or mostly it's seen as some sort of backward policies, right? Yeah, uh, something like okay, you cannot have an effective army if peasants only fighting for their own village. But if you think further, if you extend to stretch this kind of point, but that's how Mahno saw almost the ideal society. You live on a village, you make, you produce from the area where you live, you defend the area you live. You don't, you're not engaging into, into this world trade things, right? Yeah. Where, where you're completely alienated from the, for, from the products of, of what you're doing. You consume something, you have no idea where it comes from. You produce something for God knows whom. And it's all controlled by some sort of umbrella high up yeah. uh, institutions. For him, this precision or this unisymbiosis or fusion of production, defense, living is something Bookchin, for example, is arguing mm, yeah. 50 years later, is something which green anarchism is, is, is defending nowadays. But he tried to institutionalize it or to build it in practice and probably didn't have time or, or I don't know, theoretical background to reflect upon it later, but that's... He's not seen as a theoretician, but, you know, in in the in his reflections in the diaries, one of the reasons he's obviously against the state is he's got quite a sophisticated understanding of the state's role in capitalism. He sort of says that the state is integral to capitalism, which is something that, you know, a lot of people today don't even, don't grasp, and, and he's... and. And not we, as we know that you know Lenin and the Bolsheviks struggled with dismantling this, the the Tsarist state in in Russia at the time. So you could potentially argue that he's got a clearer mm. idea about the problems that the state, you know, how the state apparatus is intertwined with with capital. So that is why almost the, it seems to me the core of why he's so opposed to the state. There is like some hilarious passages in the the diary when like this international anarchist like federation or something said they they ask him to contribute to this almost like what is anarchism and Machno's contribution is like what do I think of this and then he goes into like we organise into like brigades battalions and things like that and people must <laughs> and people must be like okay thank you for your contribution <laughs> because it's just entirely on a, a war footing and Marsh and he's just obsessed with like organising you know peasant bands and things like that and it's just yes, I think also the th- what else he, he added or identified as a problem which Kropotkin for example didn't think about or other anarchists didn't think is that if you want to transform society at the global level if, if you want to have at least a bigger sector of anarchist or anarchically organized uh, population you have to do it at a large scale, almost simultaneously. That's why he was arguing for strong organization everywhere mm. in around the world, basically. He kind of, I think, foresaw, however successful can be single experience, if it's just in one place, mm. if, if it's not spread all around, it will be smashed by the state. State yeah. will, will always be stronger. So that's this is something, again, which... I think 21st century anarchism is clearly aware that it's kind of becomes trans, kind of global scene, not territorially located anywhere, but more kind of trans, transnational and, and things. But that's what, especially in his later writings, Machno was arguing for strong organization. He meant not just organization of Gulai Pole somewhere else. Mm. No, strong organization of all anarchists everywhere. So that it's this, it becomes 
difficult. Basically, it's a metaphor for his famous Tachanka, this kind of uh, machine gun carriage. Yeah. yeah. But ideal in the ideological dimension. Yeah, because he, I mean, he, he has a go at anarchists from in the urban centers. He says they're disorganized and they're disorganized and you can't build a society. If people are disorganized. There has to be structure. And I guess that's a fundamental argument in anarchism. You can have structure and order, but without, without rigid hierarchies. So within, I guess within the Gulag Polya, what was it like? You know, was it was it organized on village to village? Was it you know was it how was it how was it actually practically organized? It was organized by the way each particular village wanted to organize. Uh, Machno was removing the peasant um, elite from from power actively. Like Kulak, yeah. Kulaks, yeah, the, the the kind of agricultural capitalists of, mm. the, of the time who owned land and who yeah. owned peasants, kind of almost. But otherwise, um, he, well, at this particular area of Ukraine and in the south of Russia as well, the dominant form of uh, peasant organization was already almost non-hierarchical. It was a commune, mm. communally organized. And each commune was called Mir um, in Russian Ukraine and the, the world. So they had grassroots, a lot of grassroots democratic practices like uh, village assemblies, which decided how the land is going to be used. So Mahno just left it as it is, basically. Very, very Kropotkinist in this regard. Just leave society, treat society as you treat the nature, right? Leave it on its own, it's going to flourish. Try to moderate it and you're going to kill it. So he just left peasant communities the way they've always been pretty much there. And try to eliminate industrial um, presence in rural communities. Okay, if you th- if we think in terms of economic progress, in terms of marketization, yes, it could have probably hit the production at the large large level, but it made certainly some social relations healthier, without industrial capitalism sticking his foot into the um, rural communities and demanding the gross product, the demanding the mass produced uh, agricultural goods and things like that. In terms of leaving the communes to their own devices, it seems to me one of the intractable problems that Marxists will level at anarchists is lack of law and order, national chauvinism, so on. And and one of the criticisms of Makhno, historically, or that he was like, you know, the heart of the original (laughs) anti-Semitism controversy. You know, he was accused, uh, you know, the Makhnovists and the Black Army, elements of it were accused of being anti-Semitic, of leading pogroms against the Jewish population. Um, and, you know, he talks about the Ukrainian national culture. In the, He says that you know, the peasants were speaking Ukrainian. They were, they were encouraged to express themselves culturally. I guess, can you talk about the, the national culture of the Ukraine, but also the, as well, the, the accusations of anti-Semitism mm-hmm. and, how, and how they sort of tried to police... The, the the free territory because that's something that you always get if you're making anarchist arguments well mm. you know you'll just get people killing each other and mm-hmm. settling debts and do you know yeah. what I mean well national question in that part of Ukraine is very interesting because they language they speak there is not particularly Ukrainian it's a kind of mixture between Russian and Ukrainian and there is almost virtually no border when you can see check kind of when you border you can draw between people who speak Ukrainian and, and Russian. It's kind of very blurry area, which kind of gradually goes from Ukra- more Ukrainian to more Russian. 
So people from Western Ukraine speak almost completely different language from people from Eastern Ukraine. I mean, they understand, but they they, they can't maybe uh, speak each other. Especially if Eastern Ukrainians cannot really naturally speak uh, the language spoken in in Lviv and and other cities. So they are self-defined. They self-define themselves as Ukrainians, but at that time, national dimension was not that important in Russia. And as you know, the whole of Russia was mostly, before the revolution, was mostly defined confessionally, Orthodox Christians. Mm-hmm. Whoever is Orthodox is automatically Russian, more or less, or kind of member of the empire, citizen. So, uh, as for anti, so national question wasn't that. I think it was later retrospective, uh, addition to Mahnovis that mm-hmm. he was some sort of nationalist. Yeah. He was by far less nationalist than, than the Ukrainian independent government of, of Hetman. He was by far less nationalist than the whites, by cause than Cossacks who were joining the whites quite a lot, and whom he was fighting militantly against. So when it comes to anti-Semitism, there's a thing clear little text by Mahno who, who absolutely reiterates original anarchist position that all nationalities are, are kind of bad. <laughs> and the, the whole institution of, of nationalism is not something we're fighting for. And that I think he has a little piece on Jewish question as yeah, well. Yeah, I think it's like a letter to the Jews of the world. Yeah. And he says, you know, he's got many Jewish fighters in his units. Mm-hmm. And I found it quite funny, mind, uh, when I was reading um, Peter Ash- Ashinov's book on mm-hmm. the, the Machnavist movement, I come across a passage where someone... Uh, when the soldiers had put up a poster saying "Death to Jews, Save the Revolution, Long Live uh, Batko Makno," and uh, so it literally says that he um, then the poster had been put up by one of his insurgents uh, that he knew personally, and it was someone who'd fought against um, uh, Denikin, mm-hmm. and uh, says, uh, and he said the person was generally decent, so he presented the, the insurgent presented himself to Makno straight away, tone up, and he was shot on the spot for doing it. So, you know, I was thinking, you know, in terms of with Labour's uh, accusations of anti-Semitism, it could have been a very effective for Jeremy Corbyn to have just executed Ken Livingston. <laughs> there and there. Yes, yeah, in colour color conference. Yeah. This is how we're dealing with it. Bam. But, it, but yeah, but it's something that is used a lot. So you don't think there was anything? No. Well, Mahno was absolutely militant anti-national. Yeah. What later became known or coined as, as a philosophy of anti-nationalism or as ideological stand of anti-nationalism, which a lot of left-wing uh, forces nowadays um, kind of employ as their, their stand. So Mahno was absolutely clear on that. He, he, he despised all nationalities. Uh, he wasn't fighting for a nation. He was fighting for people. And that's that was different. Uh, yeah. So did they encounter any, you know, what I would say, you know, any of the reactionary tendencies that the Marxists sort of alleged to, you know, to be sort of innate to the peasantry? And did they have to, you know, I guess was there were there elements of coercion within the free territory? Yes, and- I think there were, um, but not uh, so far. I'm aware how the policing was organized. Uh, they had the mobile groups because the army was not in one place all yeah. the time. So where the army goes, they check the situation, so yeah. to say there. Otherwise, it's left to the peasant communities, communes to to sort the things out. And in that territory. The internal policing was mostly organized uh, around exclusion of people from the commune. So if you misbehave, if you do something, something wrong, commune kicks you out. And then you 
you go to town, which is evil, mm. uh, because <laughs> or you go to other commune if they accept you, yeah. then, then good. But otherwise, that's how it was organized, more or less. In the that was the way peasant communities in Russia fought for their autonomy from the state for centuries. Right? They kind of kept it. Um, things between themselves so that they don't need a state to intervene as not state russia has a long history of oppressive states so state wasn't always uh, the most welcoming actor in the village anyway anyway yeah so what, what about gender relations were there any any significant um they probably were not as as radically progressive as uh, avant-garde revolutionaries or revolutionary poets and cultural circles in St. Petersburg uh, calling for for yeah complete uh, um, annihilation of all sorts of rules and um, behavioral strategies in this regard. They probably um, stuck to the traditional forms of um, family which did have an element, significant element of exploitation of women. I'm not aware of any female units fighting for mm. for the black army but I'm not aware of any other cases of, of the opposite so of, of particularly extra ultra conservative agendas with regards to family or okay place of a woman you spoke then about the cosmopolitans in cafes is that a reference to kropotkin um what what was i mean makno met with kropotkin mm-hmm. during this time what was kropotkin doing doing the the revolution well, K- kropotkin came back in 1917 i think quite mm. quickly uh, after yeah. the october revolution happened he was Offered, he was invited by Lenin, and mm. he was offered a position of minister for education in the okay. new in the Bolshevik government, mm. which he obviously refused. Uh, but he was still given a state uh, or kind of Bolshevik, yeah, state fund of maintenance. We can say he had yeah. a he moved to a small town with his wife, and um, lived there for three years before he died in twenty one. Okay, and. The funerals of Kropotkin was the only, the last moment where red and black flags were mm. together in the history of Russian Revolution. Okay. He was given state funeral, um, and both the reds and the blacks uh, attended it in huge numbers. So the, and that was the last moment where blacks and reds were together in pretty much uh, the history of Russian civil war. After that, the offense on, on the free territory started, the, the Kronstadt was smashed, um, and basically the Reds went uh, on offensive against uh, the anarchist element. Would, would, sorry, I was going to say you mentioned Kronstadt. Would, would you say that was more of like an anarchist? Like, Sailors. Yeah, yeah, but would you say that the... Because they obviously, they, um, they rebelled against them, didn't they? And Trotsky, like, brutally put it down. Mm-hmm. Would you say they were kind of pushing for more of, like, an anarchist? Yeah. Um, oh, okay. They, uh, the claim was to remove Bolsheviks from the Soviets because they started to hegemonize the, the, the tendentially non-hierarchical assemblies in making decisions, especially with regards to the sailors themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay, fascinating. Yeah, the, 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 the anarchist sort of theme of the of Kronstadt is, is something that's really interesting. What are his contributions, and I know you have touched on it already even, but what are his contributions to to anarchism in general? Well, I think he was the, in the modern history, let's say, in, he was probably the first one who put forward the, the whole concept of prefigurative politics, mm. first do then think. Yeah, just do it. Uh, and if you think deeper about 
about it, why it is important. Because anarchists, I mean, you see slogans, right, written on the, on the walls, another world is possible, right? That's, that's what kind of uh, a lot of people yeah. thrive for when they start thinking about anarchism. It's something another, something new. How can new emerge? Because if you know already what the new would be, you're kind of extending the old pretty much, right? You are stretching the, the, the schemes, the, the, the structures which are around to just to cover new territory. The new can only be unpredictable. The new can only be something which is radically unthinkable from where we are now. And that's what Mahno tried to do. He didn't know how Gulaipoli would look like in 10, 5 years, but he, th- he thought that this is what has to be done. The old things, well, international thinking, right? The old world will have to destroy it down to the, to the last stone, but we have to, to have the space of, of, um, unpredictability. We have to have the space of absolute freedom, which would then decide itself what the new society would look like, which, where we would try and build something which is unthinkable even, uh, in contemporary. In, in where we are now, in the point of, point of time where we are now. So that's, I think, his very, very militant kick in the, the whole tradition of political theory, we can say, where you can think, you think about the future being completely possessed by the present. So that you can't think yeah. about the future. Making space for the unknown, yeah. because yeah, it's unknowable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, so I think that, well, at least to me, that's what, what Mahno's uh, biggest contribution in the whole universe of political ideas and thoughts and it's you know and it's nearly well i guess at least nearly 15 years before anarchist catalonia as well so it is in many ways one of the first first real practical experiments mm-hmm. of, of trying to what about conduct. the paris commune mind that was you know, yeah, was, yeah yeah i guess but, um it, but it's, it's it's one of the earliest and probably most overlooked examples of trying anarchist principles mm-hmm. on, a, on, a, on a relatively large scale oh yeah very large mm-hmm. um and what so what would you i mean what's the his legacy in in russia and ukraine today it, what's the anarchist movement i mean you said that his... kropotkin's funeral was the last time the red mm-hmm. and the black flags were flown together has there been any thawing of the relationship between anarchism and, and communism in, in, in nowadays yes well in kind of soviet history Mahno was a bit ridiculed and and portrayed as some sort of like clown who is uh uh drinking homebrew moonshine and and <laughs> the ukrainian hillbilly yeah yes. all, he was all having orgies all the time as yeah, well. So and yeah. running around in red in, in, in red trousers dancing in traditional ukrainian park <laughs> and shooting with pistols uh randomly <laughs> uh, it's, it's not that he wasn't doing that the soviet <laughs> union on like the international <laughs> quest like oh, how do you yeah, get ukraine on board like yeah, yeah, he probably would be it would seem like he would do better in some sort of red 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 army choir or, yeah, or da- yeah. dance ensemble. I'm looking. I'm looking at his fantastic hat that he was wearing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, uh, yeah, and um, so he wasn't that popular at the official level. Obviously, his le- the whole legacy of anarchist movement in the civil war and revolution was was repeatedly erased. He remained a popular hero in folk songs and folklore as some sort of Robin Hood, yeah, who, who like Paula, yeah, who was protecting the poor, protecting the, the weak, uh, against the big forces of the state and the rich. Um, I 
In Ukraine, he is almost national hero. I think even Ukrainian currency, some of the co- one of the okay. coin has really? Mahno on the well. back, back of it. <laughs> the famous uh, anti-nationalist. Yeah, 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 yeah. anti-capitalist. On the money. On the coin. Yeah. Uh, he became a kind of sung hero of, of Russian anarcho-punk to some extent, an anarcho-folk punk scene, obviously, as one of the key figures, uh, very singable, very kind of picturesque, uh, very... I think that's that's uh, the advantage of it being so long ago, is only like, a few pictures exist of you, so as soon as you get like a few good ones out... Mm-hmm. Like, There's oh. a video even exists of him. Oh yeah, yeah. I did see him uh, loading troops onto a yeah, train, yeah. wasn't it? Handsome dude. Very short yeah. as well, wasn't he? Shorty. Yeah. Shorty. <laughs> yeah. Mm, more great. <laughs> His, the legacy of anarchism... Yeah, what I find interesting is you said he—he's basically there's a history already in the Gulag Polya of anti-statism and hostility to state authority. Um, in many ways, that doesn't exist now. Did it make his life easier? You know, like I mean, to have this already pre-existing, as you said, if if the social relations already based as mm-hmm. on, on sort of the module of a com- commune. I think, well, his life wasn't easy anyway. No. He wasn't well, looking no. for for easy life. No. <laughs> but I mean, in terms of creating the, the territory, I'm trying to think. Uh, Definitely. Today, today, where the state uh, is taken for granted. Today, I think what we have to extend um, this eco-focus of Mahno further to Bukchen and further to... We are not there anymore. I mean, there are no self-sustained communities anymore. Yeah. The whole agriculture is industrial entirely. Uh, the whole relations in this peasant communities, which inspired Kropotkin, mm-hmm. uh, he, he saw where he turned into into this kind of direction is where he he saw self-sustained rural communities in Siberia first coming from St. Petersburg and living there. Yeah. Uh, so this is no longer around. So the entire agriculture is globalized, is big scale. So if we want to come back to this particular background, I think we have to look somewhere else. Uh, we have to look where the self-sustained, safe self-sustainability is in presence it can be different territories it can be different parts of of society it can be in different dimensions i don't think it's in contemporary village at least in the west large or large let's say in the north north is pretty much um, quite far away from what Mahno saw and where Mahno was operating so maybe south yes but also, it's a very now the, the now the whole world and society is way more complex than than it used to be. And the state penetrates every aspect of our, our and lives the to the state point where is, is more comp- Obviously, there was now no such thing as as um, international multinational corporations where Machno was around. So there's a big other thing other than the state, which is much less transparent, even and of which we know very little, but mm. which has probably more power than the state now. Yeah. <laughs> so do, whom to fight against? <laughs> do you think, saying that then, that almost his his um, anarchist project was doomed from the start, that, you know, it, it couldn't have perhaps um, defended itself against, like, you know, multinationalism, you know, in a perfect world where he wasn't mm. kicked out by the Red Army and, you know, he managed to create, like... Uh, you know, the, the anarchist area that you wanted? Well, I don't think it was... Depends what you think uh, the achievement, how do we measure the achievement. Yeah. Well, obviously, the free territory was, was, was crushed. 
But was it crushed? Didn't it leave legacies? I think it did. Mm. And then a lot of people look at this experience and try to adapt it to, to other circumstances. I think if there wouldn't, if there wouldn't be free territories, there wouldn't be, um, Catalonia and there wouldn't be a Spanish Republican resistance. Okay. Crushed as well. But, uh, okay. If we don't try, what what are gonna, what are we gonna do? <laughs> it's, it's almost like his legacy lives on in that sense, but you know, it's just you know, he had to go like, yeah, give it a go, yeah, give yeah. it a go. <laughs> and, uh, Prefiguration. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously highly dynamic. It's it's it transforms from from decade to decade, but uh, I think it's it's alive as as uh, some form of ideas which he didn't want to have he wanted to have practice but now we can reflect upon this practice and, and mm. think <laughs> ourselves even uh extremely comprehensive overview of the magnavis movement and the man himself thank you so much is there anything you'd like to say any shout outs to anyone or yeah anarchia might paryatka fantastic um okay my shout outs to to even for coming on thanks so much and for hosting us in his lovely lovely uh hq in in bristol no shout-outs for me. I'm still in a bad mood because okay. I still don't have a job. So I'm, yeah, Ask for a job. I've got no positivity. No, no, I don't want a job anymore. Okay, good. <laughs> so uh, now uh, Kieran is an anarchist. Yeah. I'm now an, a professional He's anarchist. a professional yeah. anarchist. My shout-out would be to my grandfather, who um, who's uh, obviously dead now. But like, uh, So I kind of criminate him. But his brothers beat someone to death back in the Ukraine back in the day. Oh, okay. So shout out to those. I think it was a Kulak as well. Oh, okay. Shout out to Yolo and Golug magazine for doing a nice profile on us. Um, we can't read it because we don't speak Welsh, but we've been told that it's quite sympathetic and uh, it's great to have. It's great to have sort of you know coverage. And um, yeah, this is obviously the start of our huge media conglomerate. And if you want a seat at the table. You've got to subscribe. You've got to. You've got to buy your own chair. <laughs> you, yeah, you've got to. You've got to uh, contribute on Patreon. So no, we're going to have some events coming up. But as ever, follow us at Desolation World on Twitter. And thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you soon. All right. Cheers. Bye. 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 Гражданин Махно, могу я спросить, имеете ли вы хоть малейшее представление о законах такой науки, как экономика? И еще вопрос. Вы расстреляли несколько человек. Запугивайте. Убили Моисей Наумович предателей. Вас никто трогать не собирается. Рассказывайте про экономику, я люблю учиться. Добавлю я 70% рабочим. Хорошо. И это скажется на себестоимости продукции. Снизится сбыт. Я вынужден буду уволить торговых агентов в уездах. Вынужден. Сбыт скорочу. И что? Где мой выигрыш будет? Меня обойдут конкуренты. И если я не разорюсь, я вынужден. Я вынужден снизить производство. Я уволю рабочих, вас. И где же выгода профсоюза? 
Это коротко, упрощенно. Бекицер, где взять деньги? Угу. Где взять деньги? Ну что ж, я трошки подскажу. У вас в доме пять человек обслуги. Оставьте одного, двух. Вам Больше не изготовить. Или рыбу не сваршируют. Свободно. Так, хлопцы? Вы по заграницам отдыхаете, тратитесь несчетно. А чем у нас хуже? Плавникам, рыбы, хочешь самов лови, хочешь лисей. Природа разная, так Ну, мебель вы из Италии заказываете. А и у нас есть тайра такие, что вам скрипку и заодно. Они тоже вам какие-то завитки на буфете. И гораздо дешевле вам мебель станет. И не хуже итальянская будет. В конюшне у вас 6 лошадей, а и пары хватит. Вот вам и деньги на рабочих. Это я вам тоже коротко, упрощенно. И к чему это все идет? В конечном счете. В конечном счете рабочие будут хозяевами. При техническом руководстве. Вашем, к примеру. Конкуренции не будет. Прямой товарообмен. Селяне рабочим. Мясо, молока, хлеба, рыбы. Рабочие им. Машины, инструмент. Сколько кому нужно? По силе надо вместе. Без денег? Без денег. А денег... А очень злого. Это я тоже коротко. В рассуждении, братцы, про такую науку, как анархизм. Мы согласны. 70% и 10-часовый рабочий день.